Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Thank you for joining me on the very first episode of Let's Take This Outside uh, and indulging in conversations with me around our mutual love for nature. There's no better person I can think of to kick this off than with Adam Schultz. He is the epitome of what I want for this podcast. Adam is a professional explorer and national best-selling author of books like Beyond the Trees and The Whisper on the Night Wind. In 2013, he was elected a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society for extraordinary contributions to geography and in 2017 completed a nearly 4,000 kilometer solo journey across Canada's Arctic. He's a geographer and historian, holds a PhD from McMaster University, and in 2016 was named a national champion of the Trans-Canada Trail. Please welcome to the very first episode of Let's Take This Outside, here's Adam Schultz. Adam, I want to start with your automatic reply email. It says, thank you for your email. I will respond as soon as I'm able. However, I'm frequently in the wilderness with limited or no email access. So at times, responses can be delayed. What is the longest that you've been away from a signal or human connection in your adventures? And also welcome. (laughs) Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. The longest time I've been without any access to electronic communications like email would probably be, well, it's, this is a complicated answer because I've had satellite phones, but you can't send an email through a satellite phone. They're pretty basic. It's kind of like an old fashioned walkie talkie that works through an uplink to a satellite orbiting the earth. So the longest time without an email, I've gone four months without being able to check my emails. And after that four months in the wilderness, when I came back and looked at the uh, chaos that was my email inbox, it was a little bit discouraging and depressing because I'm like, oh man, this is going to take forever to wade through. I want to go back out into the wilderness. Uh, But the longest time I've been out in the wilderness with no human contact would be shorter. That would be more like 40 days or so, because, you know, within that four months, I might come across someone, however briefly for like 10 minutes on the side of a river or a bush pilot resupplying me. So for the longest with no human contact, that would be about 40 days. Longest with no email contact would be closer to 120 days. But those are records I hope to break. (laughs) I was going to ask when do you when do you feel most human when do you feel like kind of most alive is it when you are away from people and and in nature and surrounded by plants and animals and when do you feel like you're most alive and authentic well for me that's got to be when I'm outdoors and more specifically I like being able to see a distance around me whether it's a you know panoramic vista of forest or mountains or lakes or open water. That is probably when I feel most alive to use your expression, because I feel like we know uh, in the 21st century, so many of us live our lives indoors, staring at something 10 inches in front of our face, which is a screen, or even in a city, like with a lot of high rises, even if you're outdoors walking on the sidewalk, it's hard to actually get a vantage point because there's concrete and steel and glass all around you. But I love the feeling of wide open space. This huge area is unfolding before your view. That to me is a very special feeling. And that's probably when I feel most excited to be alive in the outdoors, um, experiencing all that magic. What are your earliest memories 
of connecting to the earth and plants and animals? Do you remember when you were a little kid and you were playing in the mud? Do you remember any of these earlier memories? Yes. Some of my earliest memories, well, if I could try to like go right back to the, some of my earliest, earliest memories are fishing with a mm-hmm. stick in a mud puddle in my driveway. <laughs> uh, my brother and I used to do that quite a lot, uh, probably as toddlers, like two-year-olds. And I think we earnestly believed that if we worked hard enough, we'd catch a fish in the mud puddle with the stick. Or needless to say, there were no actual fish in the mud puddles on the driveway, but we believed there was when we were two. A little bit older than that, when I was like five or so, I can I can remember going into the forest around my house and building what we called forts, which were really just like shelters, like lean-tos, where we would prop sticks up against a tree and throw some dead leaves on them to make a little um, wall. I remember sleeping out in those as a kid when I was like five or six. And I remember it being pretty scary at night to be in the woods when it was dark. And interestingly enough, I remember as a five-year-old thinking I was like really deep out in the woods. But then when I got a little bit older, when I was like 10 or so, I would see the remains sometimes of the so-called forts my brother and I had constructed. And they would be like, you know, 50 or 60 feet into the woods from our house. They weren't very far at all, but they sure felt like it in the imagination of a five-year-old. But those are some of my earliest really outdoor memories of doing that kind of thing. And I think just, you know, when I was a kid, the forest held so much fascination for me. It really was this amazing landscape that was so full of mystery and possibility and adventure. And it was a little bit scary, but that was all part of the appeal of going out in this uh, enchanted forest, which was simply the woods around my house. And uh, playing there and learning about it was something I really enjoyed. And if I'm entirely honest, to this day, 30 years later, the feeling hasn't changed much. And it's still what motivates me to do the adventures and expeditions I do, that feeling of awe and mystery and excitement that comes with being in the woods and in nature. The way you talk about it in your books and the excitement that you have speaks to that, speaks to your excitement around it. But like now as a grown ass man, when you're sitting in your tent at night, you're in the middle of the wilderness. What are those things that scare you or make your hair on the back of your neck stand up? Well, I'm pretty uh, practical when it comes to being in the wilderness alone. So I honestly say that I sleep better in my tent in the wilderness than I do anywhere else in the world. It's like a five-star hotel for me. And I always look forward to like a good night's sleep out in the wild in my tent. And I've had many of them. But from a practical point of view, the things that would frighten me the most is if I know there's like a polar bear on the other side of the tent or a grizzly bear or something like that. Because uh, even though most bears are surely not looking to cause any trouble and they're probably more afraid of us than we are of them, you can never be too careful. (laughs) It's the uh, exception that you want to be wary of. So That can happen, and it would certainly be alarming if you hear a bear growling outside your tent in the dark in the middle of the night, and that has happened to me on occasion. So that that definitely gets my heart beating quicker when something like that happens. The other thing that happens more often, which is easy to overlook, but it's probably realistically the thing I fear more, um, is simply being caught up in lightning storms, which, you know, thunder and lightning happens quite a lot when you spend as much time out canoeing and hiking and camping as I do. So... I remember once I tried to tally up all the different lightning storms. I remember being caught out in when I'm in my tent in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic or elsewhere. And it's been quite a lot. And even though you try to tell yourself in that moment when you're huddled in your tent and there's thunder and lightning all around you that, well, statistically, the odds are low. The odds are low. But it's it's hard when you're, you know, you have metal tent poles right above your head and you're out on the Arctic tundra and there's no tree or anything else for hundreds of miles around you. So that's why whenever I'm in the wilderness on any expedition, 
I'm almost paranoid when it comes to the lightning. So I always select my campsite for the night with extra care. And I never try to camp on any sort of exposed area. I always put my tent in a low-lying area, even if there's not even a, a cloud in the sky and no hint whatsoever of a thunderstorm. I'm still like, ah, I don't want to risk it just for peace of mind. I'm going to plan as if there is going to be a lightning storm. And I'll put my tent over here where it's a little bit safer just so I can have that peace of mind as I drift off to sleep in my sleeping bag. Do you have a bedtime routine before you went in your tent? Do you have like a little routine before you pass out? Oh, absolutely. Especially on an expedition uh, where you just spent 12 hours in a canoe. You look forward to getting inside your tent. And if the black flies are bad or the mosquitoes are bad, that's like your little place of refuge to get away from them. So I always want to climb inside my tent, have a routine where I set up everything for the night. So it usually starts with my my thermorest where I unroll that and inflate it and lay out my sleeping bag. And then I put it my extra clothes. I usually travel with only one extra pair of clothes. I roll that up inside the case for my sleeping bag, the cover, and turn that into my pillow for the night. My extra clothes are my pillow. And then I arrange all my little accoutrements, how I like them for the night, like all my journal and my pen. If I'm not in the Arctic, then I have like my flashlight. If I'm in the Arctic in the summer, I usually don't travel with a flashlight because you have 24 hours of daylight. And I arrange all that stuff around me. And I get nice and cozy and comfortable in there, which can take quite a bit of effort when there's no flat ground. Everything is just riddled with depressions and hummocks or tree roots and rocks and that sort of thing. So it takes a little bit of fiddling around to get nice and cozy and comfortable. But when I do, that's one of the greatest feelings in the world, just to sort of, you know, nestling into this little site for the night to call home in the middle of nowhere. It's an entirely different feeling, 100% different than when you go to a designated campsite inside a park or a campground uh, you just sort of pull up there and there's a picnic table and an outlet plug it doesn't have nearly the same magic of camping in a truly wild place in the middle of nowhere there's something very special about that that i really love coming back to almost i don't want to say reality because outside is your reality but coming back to your home when you're not on an expedition in the middle of nowhere do you have a daily routine or must-haves when it comes to getting outside like no matter the weather are you always like i have to get outside at least for an hour i need some sunlight some vitamin d or even if it's raining or winter like do you have to get outside every day to feel like yourself oh absolutely yeah pretty much every day of my life no matter where i am i go for a walk in the woods 365 days a year that's easy for where I live because there's forest all around me. I walk out my front door or my back door, I'm in the woods. But even if I was traveling for, say, a book event, like, uh, and I'm in a big city like Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, uh, and I'm staying in a hotel in that city, I will still go for a walk in the closest thing to a forest that I can find, like a city park or anywhere. Hopefully there's some sort of green space nearby. And I often find in Canadian cities, it's not that hard to find some forest you can go and walk in. To me, I mean, I love doing that. And if I couldn't do that every day, I wouldn't be very happy. So uh, I try to I try to do that. And it's not even really that I make a point of it. Like I have to go outside now for an hour. It just comes naturally to me because I've been doing it pretty much my whole life. So it's just something I do almost without thinking. Usually, you know, I'll spend a lot of the day outside. And, you know, even at my house, if I'm working on my book, most of my books are based on my expedition journals that I write in the field in my tent while I'm actually out on my adventures. But even at home, I'll often work outside revising the book in the woods or that sort of thing. Because to me, that's like the forest is my muse. It's where all my creativity comes from. And if I didn't have it, all of my creative ability would just dry up and I would surely never write another book or do anything else productive uh, in my life if I didn't have access to the forest. Was that your intention? So when you're taking notes, you're a geographer, is that the right 
Is that uh, the right word to it? <laughs> well, yeah, academically, I'm a geographer, historian, and an archaeologist. But yes, I take notes in the field. So you're taking notes in the field, obviously, I'm assuming because that's part of that's part of the gig. But at what point were you like, I think I can make a book out of this? Was the intention to always be an author? Was that always there? Or did that come later as you compiled your notes and said, oh, there's actually a story here and something that I can share with others? Well, for the most part, it came later. I mean, I always loved reading ever since I was in high school. I loved reading books just for pleasure. I wasn't sure that I would ever actually write a book myself. I mean, I loved reading and I loved doing my adventures and expeditions, but it wasn't until sometime later that I realized I'd actually be able to write a book. So that that kind of came after the fact. For me, it, it was first just about being in the woods, doing what I love. And I consider myself very lucky, very fortunate that I've been able to write books and share some of my passion for exploration and the outdoors with readers. That just makes it all the... Um, nicer, I guess, that I'm able to do that. But even if I wasn't able to, I would still be doing exactly what I'm doing now, which is going out in the forest. I want to get to your books in a second, but you've explored the most remote parts of of Canada from the Arctic to Labrador to I'm sure places I've never even heard of before. But what else is on the list, um, both Canada internationally, or is there a, a next expedition in mind that you can share? Well, I'm always dreaming up new uh, projects and adventures in the wilderness, new expeditions. So I think at any given time, I probably have a list somewhere of like 27 different hypothetical expeditions I would like to do, almost all of them in Canada's wilderness. But I mean, the reality is, is that many of them will never happen, which is fine. It's I think it's perfectly normal and fine to have dreams that, you know, aren't actually going to happen because in the process, I might stumble upon something I didn't think of originally which is the nice thing about dreams. You know, sometimes we end up somewhere we never anticipated and the dreaming was all just part of that process of getting us there. So I'm constantly coming up with expedition ideas and uh, my actual title is Explore and Residence, West Away Explore and Residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. So I'm very fortunate that I'm in a position where I can do expeditions pretty much full-time as my day job. And I try to do at least four a year. And I've just finished a bunch from the past year and now it's February 2022 and I'm starting to look ahead to more projects and adventures. Really, I try to cover a full range of geographical explorations. So some of the projects I have in the works looking ahead to the horizon involve looking for some of the most endangered species in Canada. This is something I've done in the past, looking for endangered species like blue racers, the rarest snake in Canada, looking for very rare species of birds, but also expeditions that are more historical. I just completed one in September uh, based on trying to solve a riddle, a mystery in the explorer David Thompson's diary from 200 years ago, where I retraced part of his route over the Rocky Mountains through the Athabasca Pass. So I have more expeditions planned around uh, historical mysteries and other ones involving looking for lost expeditions that vanish without a trace in the Arctic or lost explorers. And I dream of doing more uh, long journeys in the wilderness focused on migratory birds and different habitats and the connections between them. So I have no shortage of ideas and many future expeditions that I hope to be able to pull off at some point. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. 
We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. If there was any gems that you could share with people without, and maybe you don't want to reveal them because you don't want them to be, <laughs> to be ruined by humans, but if there's any gems that are accessible for people that they maybe haven't thought of before, what would you say? Maybe to go camping or explore and go hiking and of course, respect the nature around them. So gems as in things people can do or as a particular place? Particular place. A particular place. Well, then I'm I'm always very reluctant to give away my favorite <laughs> places because I love solitude and wildness, and I don't of want course. to be uh, you know overrun with with people when I go there. But I think that that's a good thing, and I've always mm-hmm. said over and over again, we need more wild places, we need more green space, and that should be a big mm-hmm. investment we make in trying to rewild and bring back more natural spaces, especially in and around our cities so that everyone, no matter where they are, no matter what walk of life they come from, have access to these places where they can literally just walk out their door and have a forest there or a wetland or some sort of natural park that they can go to. I think that's really important. If I was in power, not that I'd ever go into politics, uh, that would be my top <laughs> priority is making more green space around the places people live. I think that's just so important on so many levels. Yeah, I would say that, you know, if I had any kind of advice or gem to give, it's that people should explore more what's in their own backyards or in the neighborhoods they live in. Because I think that no matter where you live in the world or in Canada, there's something special and fascinating about that place. And wherever I find myself in Canada, you know, maybe I'm just traveling for a book tour. and I'm going to some small town or some city. I always ask, you know, local people or who I meet with to show me some of the neighborhood. And I always come away with a new appreciation for that place. Like, oh man, that was an amazing little park. There were some really old trees there. You know, some of the biggest ash trees or red oaks or white oaks I've ever seen in my life. I mean, those trees are like three to 400 years old. If uh, they could tell stories, imagine the stories they would tell or some fascinating little creek or just some hill or whatever. I think that there are all sorts of um, hidden gems in our own backyards. And it's amazing. People can live there their whole life and never notice them because they're always thinking about, you know, I want to go to Venice or I'd like to see the pyramids or I'd like to go to Grand Canyon. Not that there's anything wrong with that, far from it, but sometimes we're always dreaming of distant horizons and the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And we tend to overlook these really incredible places that we have right in our own neighborhood. So that would be my first advice is that if you want to explore the world, you've got to start in your own backyard, get to know where you live as well as you can. And that will actually help you explore the wider world because you have a good grounding for making sense of whatever you might meet with in your travels to distant lands. So that would be my first advice is explore the area around where you live, no matter where you are. I think that's one of, I say, the good things that came out of COVID, but people being forced to stay home and cancel their vacations, especially in Ottawa, I would have to say that I think we're really spoiled with a great green space. And I know you've spent definitely some time in Ottawa, but with like the the bike pathways and we've gotten a park really close, but also just a bunch of beautiful hiking trails throughout the city as well. And just seeing how many people discovered how great the outdoors were the last couple of years has been inspiring to say the least. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more people get into nature, not only will it be uh, good for their health, both physically and mentally, but it's good for everyone. Everyone benefits because the more people who realize the value of, of natural spaces, hopefully the more of a consensus there is that we need to do a better job protecting them, preserving them, and indeed uh, bringing them back in areas where they've been lost. So I see that as a positive all around when that happens. I was introduced to you after I was just walking through chapters and I saw Beyond the Trees. It's it's funny because like got sucked in by the cover. It was you in the Arctic, the mountains in the background. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm obsessed with this book and I read it only in a couple of days. So tell me about your latest book, The Whisper on the Night Wind. I'm about, I'm about halfway through right now, but it's this like mix of, I, I don't even know what genre it is. And I want you to actually put it in a genre that doesn't make sense. Canadian history, folklore, and adventure. What is this genre that you have created? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it is a little bit different than any of my other books. I mean, basically, I was just hoping to write a book that would be fun for readers. I wanted, I think that's the first goal of, of me anyways, as an author is to write something that people will find fun to read. But it's, it's, in some sense, the same as all my other books. It's about exploring Canada's wilderness, our amazing, amazing natural places, going out into the mountains of Labrador, a very wild and remote place that sees few human visitors. But there's a bit of a twist when I was trying to solve a historical mystery because something very strange happened in that wilderness in Labrador 100 years ago where all kinds of people were utterly baffled by strange tracks they kept coming across in the forest, tracks unlike anything anyone had ever seen before, even experienced trappers who spent their life in the wilderness, and strange calls that echoed out of the forest at night, sled dogs that went missing with no explanation. So it was a real mystery, an enigma. And as I was reading through these historical records, I thought, there's got to be an explanation. It doesn't sound like a hoax, but maybe it could have been a hoax, or maybe it was a case of mistaken identification. You know, some animal from outside the area that had appeared that didn't belong there, and it had caused all of this confusion and chaos. But many of the people at the time, the local people, were convinced it was something supernatural, that, as they put it, a demon had walked the earth there. So I wanted to be as open-minded as possible and consider every possibility. And I felt like the only way to tell that story is to go to the place where all this happened way out in the wilderness there. So that's what I did. I went out in my canoe into the wilderness of Labrador to investigate this old mystery. And in my book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, I've tried my best to tell the story and also to make it a sort of fun read, like a kind of wilderness game of clue, a whodunit, like a Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes novel, where it's very much a mystery, where half the fun of the book is for the reader trying to figure out and unravel the mystery using the clues I give throughout the book uh, and see if you can figure it out before you get to the end. Because I think there is an actual answer out there to the, to the mystery. But that, that is my new book, The Whisper on the Night Wind. Considering you have, again, traveled to the farthest reaches of, of Canada, is there anything that you can share that you've seen or you've heard that's unexplained? Maybe not, not, like, not like UFO stuff, but more or less, or maybe that if you want to include that too. But have you seen anything, heard anything that you're like, I've never seen that before. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I mean, that happens quite a bit. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a skeptic, right? I'm very skeptical. I always take any kind of story like that with a very big grain of salt. But uh, I mean, a world, I think, is a much more mysterious place than we often give it credit. I mean, even today in the year 2022, there are many things we don't know about. And there are new species 
still being discovered every week, even in 2022. In the Amazon rainforest alone, a new species is discovered at a rate of almost three a week. In fact, scientists estimate that there are literally millions of animal species that remain totally unknown, unclassified. Now, many of those are very small. They're insects or you know species of fish that live in the ocean that are rare and we don't encounter them very often. But the, there are still larger species as well included in that tally. I mean, I give examples of that in my book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, new species of primates, turning up in the jungles of Tanzania or in the Amazon rainforest and new species of birds and things like that. Some fairly large species that have lived right under our noses and escaped detection until the 21st century, which at first glance sounds entirely implausible. But on the other hand, maybe these animals evolved that way to be extremely good at staying out of sight for humans for very good evolutionary reasons for survival, right? So this sort of thing is still going on. And I think a lot of people are not aware of that, that there are still totally unknown animals in our world and that no one doubts this. In fact, it's entirely accepted that that is the case. And almost every week brings examples of new ones being found. So when you know that, then it's like, wow, no wonder there is so much mystery out there. And I was talking about the animal kingdom. If we get into the plant kingdom, then wow, <laughs> now we're talking about a truly enormous number of species of mushrooms, of fungi, of different plants, orchids, flowers in the far corners of the world that are still unknown, right? We don't know anything about them. There's so many millions of them. Do you test the mushrooms by eating them and be like, let's see what happens? I just well, I'm alone, in, alone in the forest and I... Just going to see what happens. That's a risky game. That's a bit like playing Russian <laughs> roulette. You just start testing <laughs> mushrooms. I mean, if you were absolutely desperate, there's ways of going about that, but you definitely wouldn't want to make a mistake and eat something like a destroying angel, uh, which could be your last mistake could be fatal. You didn't know what you were doing. But I mean, I've, I'm very interested in wild mushrooms. Every fall, I lead guided nature hikes where I teach people about identifying wild mushrooms and wild plants and this sort of thing. But even if you just took Ontario, there's over 10,000 different species of wild mushrooms. So there's a heck of a lot to learn and you will almost surely continuously come across things you don't know that you've never seen before, which is part of the fun and the excitement of being out in the wilderness. I mean, think of something like bats. We don't think of bats because they're nocturnal, but there are many different species of bats here in Canada that we don't see very often because they live in caves where they only come out at night. And even now we don't know very much about them. I mean, a lot of their a lot of their behavior is mysterious to us and where they live and how they migrate and what they feed on. So that's a pretty interesting example right there of how Canada's wilderness contains all kinds of secrets that are barely on our radar, because for the most part, we think of all the big, obvious animals like beavers and moose and bears, and we don't even think of something like that. It's all, it could be all around us in, say, Algonquin Park or somewhere where you're canoeing. Oh, there's bats out here. But for the most part, it's just happening off our radars. And I mean, that's it's a relatively easy example. Think about underwater. Uh, I always think about what's down in these lakes. Imagine, imagine exploring the bottom of these lakes and the things you would find out here. And countless other examples of other things. But yeah, the, even today, our world remains a pretty mysterious place, much more so than I think a lot of people realize. You are pretty much Canada's, I would say, Canada's best millennial explorer. Is that a good way of putting it? Uh, I or don't the think best... described me quite like that before, but I... <laughs> I can't say I would object, so. <laughs> Maybe I'll rephrase my last question here. Originally was, do you have any recommendations for other guests I should interview? But perhaps I want to phrase it as, who inspires you and who do you always go to for information and to brainstorm and, and, and who is in the same space as you are? Well... As uh, someone who spends a lot of time alone in the wilderness, I'm maybe not the best person to answer this question <laughs> since I um, spend so much of my time in solitude. Yeah. Uh, it seems like most of the conversations I have are either in my head 
or with the trees or the water or the rocks or failing that with the books that I carry on my expeditions. And it seems like most of the books I'm reading were written a long time ago, hundreds of years ago by people who are no longer with us. But so, so time, some ghosts, so I should tap into some ghosts or well, get a Ouija board out. Figure out if you could figure out a way to do a podcast with people who died centuries ago, you would probably have the most popular podcast in the world. That would be very interesting. <laughs> If you could do podcasts with people from the past, ghosts or whatnot. But I mean, that said, I know that there are many fascinating people alive and well in the year 2022, and there's really no end to the number of guests um, you can get on the show. There, I'm with the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. I have other explorer and residents who do different types of expeditions, and the Royal Canadian Geographical Society sponsors a lot of expeditions for everything from cave exploration to climbing mountains to underwater exploration to storm chasers who chase tornadoes and all kinds of fascinating and interesting things. So there's certainly no shortage of, of interesting people you could interview for your podcast. Do you feel like you are living out your dream? Do you feel like you're living out exactly what you're meant to be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I consider myself a very lucky person, maybe the luckiest person in Canada, because I get to do exactly what I would have wanted to do when I was seven years old, which is spend my time out in the wilderness exploring forests and encountering wild animals like wolves and bears and moose and herds of caribou and snowy owls and all kinds of interesting wildlife. And I get to experience this majestic landscape and I couldn't be happier doing it. And I get to, on top of that, write books about the things I love. So I consider myself very fortunate and very blessed that I get to do these things. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your stories and all your writings with us in such a very entertaining way. Just the way you write. I know that people who have other people who read your books, it's more your personality and the way you look at it in such a realistic but hilarious way. So thank you for sharing your stories. And I hope that uh, you keep releasing books and audiobooks. And I can't wait to see what's next. Can you give us any hint at all of what you're working on? Well, no, I like to keep those cards. Ah. Well, I never really know. Honestly, I yeah, come yeah. up with all kinds of plans and expeditions and yeah. then they don't happen in the order that I expected them to. You know, mm. this expedition will get put on the shelf or the back burner and I'll come back to it in three years or two years. So that's one of the exciting things about doing adventures is that they never really go exactly according to plan and plans always change. So I can't say exactly, but on my Instagram page, I'll try to post something before I disappear off the grid and no longer have access to it. Where can people find more about you? You have uh, Instagram, of course, and your website. Yep, my website and my Instagram. I try to update them whenever I get the opportunity to do so. And then I also have a Facebook page as well. Thank you for coming out of the woods to talk to us for a few minutes. And I'm sure you're going to be gone again soon. <laughs> well, my pleasure. And yes, I will be. Thanks for listening. For more Let's Take This Outside, Go to let's take this outside.ca. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. 
and Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.